Hey everyone, this is Bilal Mahmood. Welcome to the Grow SF Town Hall podcast, co-hosted with my esteemed colleague, Joel Ingardio. This episode, we're gonna be talking to Heather Knight, one of the premier columnists at the San Francisco Chronicle, who over the last year has broke stories on the school board recall to murders in Glen Park, to small business closures. Heather's gonna to talk to us today about how she broke each of these stories and followed them to their conclusion over the year to reach significant outcomes and change actually in our city. And finally, quick heads up due to some technical difficulties, uh, we weren't able to record at the best audio quality this time around, but the content is still fantastic, so you don't wanna miss it. All right, here we go. Sure, I'm going to throw out the first question. You know, when, when we were promoting this show, I wanted to make a connection to Herb Kane. Like, it's Heather Knight, today's Herb Kane. And then my colleagues at GrowSF didn't know who he was. Uh, so if you lived in San Francisco uh, anytime before the year, say, 2000, uh, you would know that Herb Kane was the famous Chronicle columnist, and he was called literally the voice and conscience of San Francisco. And he wrote this column for 60 years until nearly the day he died. Uh, and a mention in his column could make or break anyone, a business, a politician. So Heather, maybe you are the, the 21st century group came, but in any any way, tell us what is the power? What power does a good columnist have? <laughs> wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I am different than Herb Cain because he wrote six times a week, which I still can't believe. But I take solace in the fact that he had two um, assistants to help him answer his piles of mail, which I do not. So um, also, I he was more fun and quippy, and it was an items-based. He was um, famously called the three-dot columnist because he'd have a little item, and then it'd be the dot, 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 and then the next one. Whereas I um, dig into issues more and more investigative work. But um, also, he was out and about every night in the city, whereas I... Um, I do have to pay some attention to my two little kids at home, so there are some differences. But um, the power of a columnist, I think, I was a reporter for a long time, and taking on the columnist job was kind of awkward and weird at first because my editors were suddenly telling me to put my opinions into my stories, which I was always told not to do before. So going switching those roles overnight was definitely a big learning curve, but I've gotten the hang of it, and now I like to just um, find regular people and regular issues that affect all of us to illustrate um, something bigger, some policy problem we have, of which there are many, and explain to people how to make San Francisco better through stories of just regular people and what they're facing. But when you write a column, the power, what I'm asking is like, can you change policy? Can you change hearts and minds? Can you, you know, if, if, the, if the populace is, has against X for many years and you make a persuasive case about Y, can you move the needle? Yeah, I definitely aim to do that. It's easier said than done. I thought I had done that a few months ago when I pointed out that it's ridiculous that um, a one cranky person can block an emergency transit project, for example. Um, I wrote about slow streets created during the pandemic and two cranky people who were um, appealing them, causing tens of thousands of dollars in staff time uh, at the city hall to defend them. And right away, Mayor Breed and Supervisor Haney created legislation to change that, and it looked like it was going to happen. But um, sadly, that was thwarted in the land use committee by Supervisors Peskin and um Preston, and so that didn't happen. So sadly, that <laughs> ultimately was not a success. But I have had successes in the past. Probably my most proud moment was when I concentrated um, a lot on how underpaid San Francisco public school teachers are and how hard it is for them to afford to live in their own city. And I found um, 
a math teacher with a master's degree who was sleeping in a homeless shelter, and I profiled her. And um, a few days later, uh, the late mayor, Ed Lee, committed $44 million to teacher housing, and I was really proud of that. But um, again, you know, after you create the policy change, hopefully as a columnist, um, city bureaucracy still has to wind its very slow way towards making it actually a reality, and um, ground has still not been broken on teacher housing in the outer sunset. So the columnist still has more work to do. I, I, want to, <laughs> I, I want to back up a little bit because you had talked about you were a reporter and then you had to become a columnist and insert your opinion and that was a learning curve for you. I want to like explain how newspapers work because I think there's a lot of confusion. Like, What's the difference between the story written by a columnist and a reporter? And the editorials by the editorial department, and the, and then the guest essays on the editorial page. Because when you're on Twitter and people are are just you know, they're just posting links about this and that and the other, and people are saying, oh, the Chronicle's horrible. They they wrote that, and then oh, I love the Chronicle for writing this. But I, I think people don't realize um, the difference between a news report, a column, and an op-ed. Can you just just quickly tell us the difference? Yeah, I think those distinctions were a lot more obvious when everybody was reading the paper, the print, because they were better in their own sections and better labeled. And um, it was more clear when you were actually reading um, a regular newspaper. And it's not always as clear when people are sharing links back and forth on Twitter and stuff. So um, most people, most journalists at the Chronicle are reporters and they cover beats and they are objective and are not supposed to put in their opinion on anything. Um, that's what you would normally think of as you know a regular newspaper article and then columnists there are a handful of us and we get more leeway in what we cover luckily i think i have the most amazing beat which is just san francisco um i cover a lot of city hall politics but i can write about anything i want to that relates to the city so my regular readers know i sometimes do fun and silly stuff too and i i really get to run the gamut but i'm encouraged to put my voice in there and have an opinion and kind of convince people of, of my point. And then um, the editorial board is a group of usually about five or six people at the Chronicle who comprise the editorial board. And um, in normal times, they have a lot of in-person meetings um, at the Chronicle with politicians or nonprofits or whoever is trying to get their point of view across in the Chronicle, especially during election time. And they will together come up with the opinion that runs on the top of the opinions page in the Chronicle. That's not labeled, so that that doesn't usually have a name on it. It's just um, the opinion of the editorial board. And then they also run op-eds, which they encourage community members to write in their own opinions. And those are always labeled by whoever wrote it and, and their position. Um, so those are usually the four different categories. In, in the old days uh, in journalism, there was a phrase called the separation of church and state, which meant uh, the reporters on the, on the reporting side did not mix with the folks who wrote on the editorial side. Does that, does that firewall still exist? Like, can you influence or talk to uh, what happens on the editorial page and vice versa? That firewall still definitely exists. I have no idea what the edi editorial board is going to come out with, and sometimes I agree with them and sometimes I don't. And it can be hard when the average reader thinks, oh, everybody at the Chronicle thinks this way, um, and I vehemently disagree with it. And I might agree with the reader, but I'm just kind of supposed to stay out of it. Uh, we don't talk to them about anything really um, in terms of shaping their opinions. It's just this group of five or six people who do that on their own. And likewise, they don't tell us what to cover. So there is definitely a firewall in, a, in the organizational chart of the Chronicle. Um, we don't overlap at all. Like the, it's two different sections. And I think it might be good just for people to understand that who 
directs the editorial page and the editorials can make a difference because we had someone uh, directing the Chronicle's editorials for many, many years who just retired recently, and now we have a new person. So we might yeah. be seeing a new slant on things, and, and I think you see it on Twitter because people are like, hey, I hated the Chronicle. How come they now say this? Like, I like <laughs> what they say now, and vice versa. But that's right. just the editorials. That's not the reporting. So I just want to make that clear. Is that, that fair? Yes, we had a longtime editorial um, page editor named John Diaz, who um, retired recently. And we have a new one named Matthew Fleischer, who does, I actually haven't met him in person yet, but from reading his stuff, he does seem to be more of a progressive than John was. So that's probably why people are seeing a difference. Got it. Bilal, you got some questions? Yeah, let's move on to the next topic. Pause uh, technical difficulties. I'm going to take over Joel's mic here. So Heather, you covered a couple transitions into like diving deeper into these stories of what it means to be a columnist. You alluded to a couple, and I think you've covered several over the last year, and I'm especially interested in three stories that you revisited a number of times. There was the murder in Glen Park, an ice cream store that couldn't open because of bureaucratic roadblocks, and obviously school board member Commissioner Allison Collins, who's now suing the school district for $87 million. You've been called a, a dog with a bone in the press uh, for pursuing these stories, but I'm curious, what does that mean, and why does the analogy apply to these stories in particular? Um, I think a lot of journalists get so busy that they may visit one subject one day and then you never hear about it again, or like you may wonder, well, whatever did happen to that ice cream guy? Or you know, months later, you might remember a story and have no way of finding out what happened. And I like to um, get a topic that really interest people and just keep hammering it <laughs> over and over. I think that's why people um, have called me a dog with a bone because I'm not going to let it go until there's a resolution. Um, if you read my stuff a couple of years ago, I did that a lot with billing at San Francisco General Hospital. They were sending bills to unsuspecting patients who had insurance, but they weren't taking it. And people would go there for like appendicitis and need their appendix out and then be shocked with a bill for like $90,000. And I wrote about that again and again and again and again. And then finally, they changed the policy. So I think they just didn't want to see their name in the paper anymore. But um, that's an example. So yeah, the three that you talked about, I try to go back to um, stories and um, and inform people. One of the one you mentioned first was um, in May 2020, there was an elderly 94-year-old man walking his dog in Glen Canyon. And another man who um, was known around the neighborhood for sleeping in the planter box outside the school and being um, seeming to be mentally ill, there was some sort of encounter and police charged the um, homeless man with the murder of the 94-year-old. And so we wrote that as a story and I wrote a column pretty quickly after it happened saying that this was another example of our city and state's broken mental health care system and broken housing policies um, that just left this person out there for so long and did nothing to help them and, and what a disaster that proved to be. And then um, I followed it up recently um, just this past May at the year anniversary of the killing to find out whatever happened in all this and was really sad to learn that the um, man accused of killing the elderly man, Peter Roca, um, was still being held in county jail, even though a judge had deemed him incompetent to stand trial and ordered him to go to a state mental hospital for treatment. There was no beds and there was actually a waiting list of 1,500 people in his position waiting for treatment that they were they had a right to, the judge had ordered them to get and they couldn't get it. And so he was just held in this jail cell in a psychotic state for a year um, with no improvement. And then um, I just today have an item in 
my column um, after the, the May column, he finally was moved into a state hospital. And I talked to his brother and said that he is, um, he sounds better on the phone. He sounds like he's improving. So um, a little bit of better news on that story. That's great. So that's, that's a good news. I mean, that's like a, I mean, it's a sad story with a, you know, relatively quote unquote happy ending, I guess, but. Well, not happy, but not yeah, as bad. <laughs> not as bad, that's right. Uh, when it comes to our school board commissioner, Allison Collins, that story is still ongoing. So what is it that you're pursuing uh, or that needs to be pursued? Because we're, we're in the middle of it. Yeah, um, well, Chronicle readers know that the school board gave us a lot of <laughs> fodder over the past year, and perhaps no member was more infamous than Allison Collins for a number of reasons, biggest of which was that um, she sued her own colleagues on the school board and uh, the school district itself for a combined $87 million. That case is still ongoing, no resolution there. Um, so she's she's still suing. Um, and it was very ironic to read in um, the most recent coverage of the judge yesterday who said that the school board had acted illegally in, um, in ruling to dismantle the Washington High murals that um, Allison Collins back then had said, don't threaten me with a lawsuit. <laughs> so um, kind of a funny twist there. But Heather, it's interesting because um, to go back to some of Joel's earlier questions about the difference between a reporter and a columnist. Yeah. And then you mentioned that like, one of your, your strengths and what you find really powerful is that you can follow up with stories. So it sounds like the need to follow up with stories repeatedly is how you actually influence outcomes. And if you let stories die, uh, that's when it disappears. And that's kind of why you tend to focus on following up to consistently mm -hmm. help evangelize. Is that correct? Yeah. So an example with um, Allison Collins was not just covering um, what she was doing meeting to meeting with and with her lawsuit. But um, I got a tip from an acquaintance of mine who was friends with um, a woman named Patricia Seal, who was Allison Collins' daughter's middle school principal. And um, she agreed a few months ago to speak publicly for the first time about intense bullying by Allison Collins when she was principal and the fact that Allison cost her her job and then got on the school board and cost her another job. And, um, and was able to connect me with others in the school district who had similar experiences. And so I did a pretty long investigative piece on that. Um, and just the importance of building your sources and staying on top of the issues and finding out what's happening next and going deeper than just like, at this meeting, she said this, but what is the bigger picture with this official? And, and I think one other thing you point out here that's across the question in my mind is, when you're repeatedly following up on a story like this, which is high public pressure and obviously involves litigation, um, how does a journalist or a columnist deal with those types of stories when there's like threat of suit or mm -hmm. involvement? Like, how, what is different about this type of story that you're following and, and how do you account for it? Yeah, that was definitely top of mind when I was working on the investigative piece about her history as, as a mom in the public schools. And obviously, uh, my editors were concerned that there could be legal action. And so um, the story was read many times by many editors who um, went over it and over it and over it with a fine tooth comb. And our lawyers at Hearst and New York City also reviewed it. So we felt that we had a really airtight case. And then um, once everybody was on board and felt we had 
you know, back this up as much as possible, given um, Alison Collins many chances to respond herself, gave her a list of the questions so she wouldn't be surprised by anything that was in the story. Um, then we published, and um, we really haven't heard anything that we got wrong. There's been no legal action taken. That's 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 good. Um, uh, moving on to a slightly still different story, but more less pressure. Ice cream. That's what we <laughs> want to go into ice cream. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's fun, but like how how like how bad uh, you're a columnist. You're you know, even though you're writing some opinion, you still have to be objective. But how personally bad do you feel for this poor guy who who tried to open this ice cream store? Like, and what was it about his story that made you want to you know really follow up with it and 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 highlight it? Yeah, I'm a big um, advocate for small businesses, and especially was trying to highlight them a lot during the pandemic because they were obviously suffering so much financially. And I knew that Prop H was on the ballot in November, which would supposed to make it easier to open a small business. But I find coverage of ballot measures can be incredibly boring. So I wanted to find somebody who would illustrate this and bring it to life. And I was um, told of, oh, there's this guy, Jason. He's been trying to open a an ice cream store in the mission and I was able to connect with him and he um, just gave this heartbreaking story. He's a young dad, two little kids, native of San Francisco. All he wanted to do was open an ice cream shop and he was just running into one block after another with permitting and um, at a competing ice cream shop, um, going to the planning commission to say he shouldn't have the right to open near them and and that cost more time and more money. Um, And it was just this kind of saga that perfectly illustrated um, San Francisco bureaucracy and the fact that it was so relatable, this dad just trying to open an ice cream shop, just really, that was like a, just a great find. Yeah. And I think what resonated with me about this ice cream store is uh, that happened most recently is that we've both been around long enough to remember another ice cream store in 2012 that went through the same nightmare. So that's the ice cream bar in Cold right. So they were eventually able to open, um, but they face the same city hall bureaucracy that kills small businesses that you're talking about. That the ice cream bar saga is actually so terrible it made national news. The New York Times wrote about it. They did a big feature. They quoted a bunch of San Francisco politicians who said, oh my gosh, it's terrible, we're gonna fix it. Uh, well, a decade later, same story, same saga. Um, yeah. There's another columnist in town, Joe Eskenazi, and he's been at this as, as long as you. Uh, and, and in 2009, so a long time ago, he writes a story that called San Francisco, quote, the worst run big city in the U.S. And that story from way back mentioned a lot of the same names that were brought down by the corruption scandal at City Hall just in the past year. Yeah. So, so like, how do you stay hopeful about our city after <laughs> writing about so many failures that we just keep repeating? We're going back decades. It's the same thing over and over again. Yeah, as a resident, I get super frustrated. As a columnist, it's um, <laughs> it's great that I have so much to write about. But um, it is super frustrating as a mom myself and uh, trying to raise kids here just how incompetent and slow so many people are. But um, I stay hopeful because it's such... It's just there's so much potential here. There's so many creative people who I do think are well-intentioned in most, most cases um, and really smart people like... Um, the group that's listening today just like obviously engaged and we have a beautiful city great small businesses so much to do i really don't think you can be bored in san francisco or you're not trying very hard um and so i try to keep optimistic as much as i can and and if we all keep working together to make it better maybe we'll see some good results 
does it help that you've been at this 20 years like folks like you and Eskenazi like you know where the bodies are buried you keep lists like you know because if you've only been in town for five years you might not realize that whoever's corrupt today was was at it 10 years ago or 15 years ago like so how much in your list keeping are you keeping notes as to you know to kind of keep people honest yeah I definitely try to do that um and name names as much as I can. So that's definitely an, an important role for longtime journalists because um, we have the institutional knowledge that a newcomer wouldn't. And so we, we have the phone numbers and the names and the memories to inform stories. So I try to help my younger colleagues with that a lot as well. Hi, this is Sachin. Thanks for listening to the Grow SF Town Hall. We started GrowSF because we love San Francisco, and we think we can make it even better if residents learn more about how our city is run and get involved. You can learn more about GrowSF at growsf.org. Heather, who's your either favorite or you feel most impactful politician in San Francisco state or national over the last 30 years? Um, I'm a huge Elizabeth Warren fan. I voted for her in the primaries, and um, I think she's amazing. And um, while it's great we have a woman vice president, I wish we had a woman president. What do you like about Warren? Um, Her enthusiasm and energy and uh, her policies. I pretty much agree with the vast majority of her policies, especially financial. Got it. And how about the city? My favorite politician in the city? I probably can't say that. (laughs) <laughs> maybe someone who's who's passed passed um if i think of one i will jump in but i can't right now <laughs> no, that's okay is it is there anyone that that's that's that you find more effective than others can you mention that that seems to be effective in what they do um just because I just wrote about fourplexes, I would give a shout out to Supervisor Mandelman for pushing this issue. Um, even though so many people hate it, I think it's it's admirable that he keeps pressing on on the importance of building more housing for our city. How about Scott Weiner uh, pushing it on the state level? Yeah, he he's like a dog with a bone too. He does not give up on this issue, even though it's been turned down so many times. So credit to him for that. And, and do you like dog with a bone? Do you do you wear that moniker with pride? Or <laughs> you like you wish I had something a little nicer. <laughs> I'm cool with it. <laughs> Great. Are we ready for audience questions? Um, yeah, let me see some. Um, the and let, let's remind people how to send submit the question. Yeah. So people have audience questions. Uh, just submit a tweet uh, directly at GrowSF, and then we'll read it out. The so first question. Is there a story or a theme that you're planning on covering over the next six months that you haven't covered yet that's, that we should keep a lookout for? I'm sure something will come up, but I can't predict it if the news hasn't happened yet. So as of now, I'm working mostly on um, fentanyl crisis, housing, um, schools, continued themes that I've been writing about, but um, I'm sure something else will crop up. Is there a story, maybe a, another lens to that, is there a story that you haven't written about before, uh, it might be a hard question, that you might be interested in writing about or uh, even another genre of, of writing. I, we find a lot of journalists will cover a book about like one, so it is The Bad Blood, which is about the Theranos cycle. Oh yeah, that was great. That was a great book. And so it's like oftentimes journalists will write one book about one huge issue. If there was a huge issue that like was career defining or that you could potentially write a whole book about, 
What do you think it would be? Probably the homelessness and drug crisis in our city. Interesting. Speaking of books, uh, Season of the Witch, is, is that like required reading for any new resident to understand <laughs> the history of our city, to understand why San Francisco is the way it is? Yes, that was a fascinating read. And I'll also use that um, question to plug that you all should join the Total SF Book Club. My colleague and I, Peter, my colleague Peter Hartlob and I started it um, over the summer with Alia Volts' Home Baked about her growing up with a mom who sold um, illegal pot brownies all over San Francisco. Our new book is End of the Golden Gate, um, 25 writers writing about why they stayed or left San Francisco. And um, we partnered with the San Francisco Public Library and Green Apple Books. So we'll be doing quarterly books and our next meeting is August 24th and you can sign up on the San Francisco Public Library website. We'll be interviewing Gary Kania and Daniel Handler, AKA Lemony Snicket. Great. And just a reminder to the audience, we're, we're talking with Heather Knight, the columnist of the San Francisco Chronicle. You can submit your questions. Just tweet us at GrowSF. Who else should uh, people follow at the Chronicle? Uh, and what are the stories that they're covering that you think we should pay attention to? Uh, my colleague, Trisha Thadani at City Hall, um, is doing a great job covering the mayor as well as the homeless and drug crisis. And she's working on a big project about fentanyl. And she was um, looking, telling me about some records she got yesterday, tracking all of the deaths um, over the past, I forget how far she went back, at least a year. And just seeing the names and addresses and ages and all these people every single day, it really brings it home. Um, and she's doing great. So I would definitely follow her and my other colleague, Mallory Mensch, is a saint for sitting through every single Board of Supervisors meeting, um, writing about $20,000 trash cans and everything else they're up to. So um, they're, they're a great pair to be covering City Hall. What about Jill Tucker, who covers school board? Oh, she's had the busiest beat of anybody. She finally got a vacation recently, which was very well-deserved. But yes, she's writing like multiple stories a day on schools and doing a great job. Am I remembering this right, that you and her had a little competition on, on, the, on the number of Twitter followers that you have? Oh, I don't remember that. Oh, okay. Maybe. <laughs> well, who, has, who has more? Oh, yeah, who has more Twitter Me. followers than you? <laughs> So I want to talk a bit about, uh, you know, we've had so much corruption at City Hall. And as, as much as the good work that you do and your colleagues do at the Chronicle, the Chronicle is, is really a shell of what it was if you, if you think back to the 1990s and earlier. Like, there were multiple, multiple people covering City Hall, people covering the courts, people right? You just don't have that deep bench mm -hmm. of reporting anymore. Like, are we having more scandals at City Hall because they can get away with stuff because we don't have... The, the number, the sheer number of reporters watching everybody and everyone? And, and how do we make up for that? Subscribe to your local paper. Um, people say, oh, the newspaper's so thin these days. Well, there's a reason because we um, don't have nearly as much advertising as we used to. When I joined um, as an intern in 1999 was the height of the first dot-com boom. And we had full page ads every day from like Webvan and pets.com and um, plenty of money to support a huge staff, and that has drained as well as subscriptions. Um, luckily, our digital subscriptions are rising a lot, but they, they're not equal, you know, money-wise to what we used to have for print, um, which is more expensive. So I just think uh, people shouldn't complain about um, journalism unless they're helping to support it. For what it's worth, I've heard several friends who say they subscribe to the Chronicle uh, after reading more and more of your coverage. Oh, well, thank you very much. What are other ways that you feel that the public can help, aside of subscribing to the Chronicle and their local papers, 
what are other ways that journal um, that the public can help to support local journalism? I um, love when readers send me tips on Twitter or email or call me or however, some of my best stories come that way. Like um, one of my favorite anecdotes on that score is a woman who lives at the top of the twisty part of Lombard Street called me and said, um, there's all these car break-ins and we try to warn tourists and and we just can't act fast enough and the police never come and we don't know what to do. There's shattered glass everywhere. So I went out to meet with her and we saw a car break-in happen right in front of us and luckily... I had a photographer with me who got amazing photos of the guy looking right at us. I mean, it was so blatant. He knew what we were up to, I'm sure, and um, didn't matter. And he broke into a car, grabbed a backpack, and drove away. But we put it on the front page of the paper, and they did end up finding the guy and arresting him. So that all came because I answered an email from a woman on Lombard Street. So I love when readers send me ideas. What's your view on the uh, labels? Like most people in San Francisco are Democrats, but we we have different shades of blue. And so we've kind of created two camps and, and people claim it was the media who did it. Like there's the progressive camp and the moderate camp. And the, the progressives love their label because it sounds great. The moderates hate their label because it sounds <laughs> terrible. They're always trying to say, no, we're the true progressives. Like what's your view on this weird, only in San Francisco shade of blue thing where we've created two local political parties who are all Democrats, but they're different shades of blue when we call them moderates and progressives yeah i think most people don't really fit into one or the other i know i don't i go back and forth um depending on what the issue is and i don't think those labels are very helpful some genius should come up with better better ways of describing them um why don't you do that okay yeah, but I have written lately um, a lot about how a lot of what San Francisco does is actually very conservative, like not building housing and being so car-centric and not closing any roads without like deca- decades-long fights. So a lot of what we do is actually not progressive at all, which makes that word even more confusing. So you have one uh, hot kind of a question, actually, maybe to, as we wrap up the, the hour, um, we covered a little bit about Austin Collins in the beginning, and you mentioned how you were going back and, and hearing uh, how some of the behavior that we're now hearing now is actually something that you noticed several people noted in the past. Aaron Peskin was another story that the Chronicle broke recently, but these are all the people considered more or less open secrets. What are other open secrets in SF politics that you think should be more open and maybe less secret? Well, I would do my best to make sure they're not a secret anymore, so... If I know of one, I would have already written about it. So happy to hear suggestions from others. But, but why did it take 20 years to write about the Peskin story? Like everyone knew that that was the story for a long, long time. We did write about it many times, like his encounter with the fire chief during a fire in North Beach and his his late night phone calls. And we wrote about it a number of times, but nothing ever changed. Mm. Any sense as to why nothing changed, even though it was written about? I mean, it, I mean, this, you may write about it, but the other politicians, the other people in the political sphere would be silent, right? They didn't raise mm-hmm. a ruckus about it. Like, what's your take on that? I think because he has so much power, especially over land use and development decisions, that they didn't want to cross him. Mm. Interesting. That's fair. Um, so as we wrap up the hour, uh, are there any other questions, any other things that you want to say to the audience, ways that people can help? Uh, you mentioned a couple of ways people can help the Chronicle from subscribing, that can send you tips, mm-hmm. uh, and how you got the front page story out of one recent tip recently. Any other last parting words for the audience or other ways we can help? 
Um, I'd love to hear from any of you with story ideas. My email is hknight at sfchronicle.com, or you can DM me on Twitter. I'm at hknightsf, and please subscribe to The Chronicle. And thank you for listening. Thank you, Heather, for joining, and it was great to have you on a Wednesday afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, thanks for listening to the Grow SF Town Hall. Now more than ever, we need to support our small businesses. They have struggled to stay alive through the pandemic and need our help to get back to 100%. So please shop local, eat local, and if you can, tip big.